Welcome to BIB Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. My guest today is an acclaimed author, geopolitical strategist, all-round big thinker on our future. Peter Zion has written three prominent books on global affairs, with a fourth on the way in May. He's going to be the featured speaker at this year's CFA Society Vancouver annual dinner, this year consumed virtually on January 27th. For a bit of a sampler at the edges of that conversation, he's joining me now. Good to see you. Great to be here. Well, in the in the vast realm of geopolitics that you examine, um, tell me a little bit. What's keeping you up at night, worrying? <laughs> well, there, there's no shortage of things that are breaking down right now. Uh, the the world that we've become used to in the last fifty to seventy years is is going away the, in the first half of this decade. Uh, the, the two big trends: deglobalization. So any sort of global supply chain or global import that is necessary to maintain whatever it is you care about is going to change and countries and companies that can be on the front end of that can profit and everyone else is kind of screwed. Uh, the second big piece is depopulation. Uh, we, we've, you know, we're still hearing stories about 10 billion people in overpopulation, how we're going to feed everybody, but that's just not in the cards. Uh, with industrialization and urbanization over the last 70 years, Family sizes have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that in most of the world, we're already below replacement levels, including in most of the developing world. And in the 2020s is when we have a huge mass of people, the baby boomers, the last big generation that were born in the advanced world, move into retirement. And they had fewer children, and then they had fewer children. And so we are actually looking at a population bomb this decade. And since everything we know about economics is based on the pie getting a little bit bigger every year, we don't even have an economic theory of how to wrestle with that. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the Pope is even chiding people for having pets instead of children. Exactly, have kids, not pets. That's right. Uh, but, but so, so what are people worrying about, but maybe shouldn't be worrying about right now? Well, I would argue that most people are at least now starting to realize that there's some bigger issues. They might be worried about the tip of the iceberg rather than the iceberg, but I still see this as, an, as a plus. So a couple of great examples. Um, what is going on in Kazakhstan and Ukraine right now? Mm. We've got two post-Soviet republics that are trying to figure out what it means to be a post-Soviet republic. Ukraine is going in the direction of democracy, to which the Russians say, yet. And the Kazakhs are going in the state in direction of full totalitarianism, which the Russians are think are great, and they've already deployed troops. Uh, that impacts uranium, oil, natural gas, wheat, corn, metals. Uh, that hits the base supply lines for a lot of materials upon which a lot of countries in the wider world, especially in East Asia, depend. So we're seeing these depopulation and deglobalization trends breaking down the security parameters in multiple parts of the world. And every time a supply chain or an input comes out of these zones, it is then threatened. Mm -hmm. uh, China, Taiwan is another good example. Three quarters of the world's manufacturing supply chain steps are involved in the East Asian rim, uh, completely transported by water. You get a naval war over there, it ends. So, so then how does how does the pandemic fit into this? And what, it's what, are, what, are the, what are the lessons of the interconnectedness that, that the pandemic's teaching us? 
<laughs> not friendly lessons. Um, what the pandemic has really done is speed up everything. So what was supposed to, supposed to, wrong phraseology, what was probably going to unfold over the next 10 to 15 years and now unfolding in like a, a five to six year period of which we're already two years into. Uh, we originally faced a populism, a trade, a labor opposition to free trade. And we saw that in Donald Trump and we're seeing that in Joe Biden. We now have a national security and a health opposition to international dependencies. And so you're seeing huge efforts in Europe and North America to reshore as much of their industrial plant from East Asia as they can. So that's kind of piece one. Piece two is China itself. China's devolved into a full cult of personality. There's one person at the top, Chairman Xi, who makes the decisions, and he has literally shot the messenger who has brought him bad news so many times that nobody wants to bring him accurate information anymore. Mm -hmm. So here we've got a country where their financial system is broken beyond repair. We've got a country where their demographic inversion is happening so rapidly that we now think, according to Chinese data, that their population actually peaked 15 years ago. Yeah. And we're just well into the population collapse. But Xi can't get information to make decisions. On top of that, the Chinese uh, vaccine for COVID functionally doesn't work, especially versus Delta and Omicron. So the only tool they have in their toolbox to maintain national legitimacy for the Communist Party is health now. And that means lockdowns. That's their only tool. So China is no longer seeing participation in global supply chains as something that guarantees legitimacy for the party. All that's left is lockdowns. And in that sort of environment, anyone who is still dependent upon Chinese manufacturing is about to get hosed. Wow. Yeah. It, America seems to have a, a, a distinct and a clear strategy about China. Canada, as you know, is a bit stuck on this issue. Uh, doesn't really understand what might be the wisest course of engagement with China, given our status in the world, given that we're not even really a, a middle power much anymore. What, what do you think is the wisest course? Well, well, first of all, thank you for saying about the United States. I, I disagree. The idea that there's a, a clear and concise policy out of Washington on anything right now is, is kind of a reach. <laughs> thank okay. you. Okay. Well, uh, let, me, let me say comparably clearer. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of things about uh, the Trudeau administration that I think are a little quirky. Um, this isn't one of them. Now, the thing to remember about the relationship between Canada and the wider world is it's a subset of the relationship between Canada and the United States and then the, the Canadian provinces among themselves. Yeah. Canada didn't have its first internal free trade agreement among the provinces until two years ago. I mean, you want to talk about late on the sick. Uh, and then the Canadians have always tried to get as many exemptions to American trade law as possible because they don't want to be, you know, in bed with the elephant when it rolls over. You know, I get it. But what that means is that Canada has deliberately broken up trade relationships among itself and with its largest trading partner in order to maintain a degree of political independence. I get it. But it means that Canada can never achieve an economy of scale. And in that environment, we saw the mass deindustrialization of China over the course of the last 50 years, which meant that if China was going to retain a position of relevance and affluence, and it can't do it in manufacturing, it has to do it as connective tissue. 
And so whether it's St. John's or Vancouver, Canada absorbs huge amounts of imports from the wider world and then distributes them in North America. There's value add, I don't mean to suggest that there's not, but Canada is not a manufacturing power, Canada is a manufacturing appendage to other manufacturing powers. In a globalized system where the pie gets bigger, that works. We're not in that world anymore. So if we break down global well. supply chains, those super ports that you have on the Atlantic and Pacific fringes suddenly have a lot less business, yeah. whereas the Americans and the Mexicans get down to the big business of building out their manufacturing system internally. And if Canada doesn't change their policy very quickly, they're simply going to be left out. I've seen uh, uh, some interest in, in uh, the new book that you've got coming in May um, and, and its uh, argument around the need, the arrival, I guess, and, and the need for a kind of a greater self-reliance. Um, are, are we as a country here, do you think, um, in the right track on that one? Or, or oh, Well, absolutely not. Um, the Trudeau administration right now should be working on manufacturing across the provinces, should be breaking down the barriers among the provinces. And that means, among other things, that the prairie provinces have to be allowed, encouraged to do more themselves. And since the prairie provinces, demographically speaking, are the youngest and are paying the most into Canada in order to support the aging populations in Eastern Canada, you know, that's politically, that's a non-starter in Ottawa. Um, you also would need to finally, hopefully permanently, break down the, the uh, barriers between Ontario and Quebec. And as we all know, that is like the story of Canada going back to the beginning. It is easier for the individual provinces of Canada to integrate with the United States, but that still requires a change in policy out of Ottawa. And right now, there seems to be this desperation in Ottawa to hang on to the structures that they have fought for 60 years to build. I get it. The sunk costs are huge. And successfully adapting to these changes means giving up what historically has made Canada special. It's the, the age-old question of politics versus economics. This is not an easy discussion to have. Yeah, but to but, this point, Canada hasn't started the discussion. That's a problem. But hasn't hasn't the pandemic at least warned us again about uh, about our systems? Uh, you know, when you take a look at the uh, the way in which uh, treatment and restrictions and uh, advice even has been imparted across across a country, I mean, you can see it in the United States, obviously between the federal and the state systems. Um, in Canada, you can see it at a federal and a provincial level. Are we learning nothing from the pandemic that would help us? The problem with judging favorably or harshly from that criteria is that this was a novel device, a novel virus. I mean, it's in the name, novel coronavirus. It's evolved meaningfully five times. Mm. And our vaccine picture has changed as times eroded. our treatment methods have changed, and we're now realizing that it's going to be with us forever. Every time you have a shift in the facts, the goalposts move. So I have a hard time condemning anyone for doing too little or too much. Uh, in the case of Canada, I think your response was better than ours. That is not a high bar. Uh, but we are going to be drawing lessons from this for decades, because if you think this is the last bug that we're ever going to have to deal with, I'm sorry, but history's got some surprises for you. Yeah. 
The, the other uh, lesson that appears to be there is that we are, we are now, uh, I think, beginning to appreciate uh, the global nature of, of our systems, not just uh, supply chains, but our, our, our health, our very health, and the notion that no one is really safe until everyone's really safe. Um, but again, um, is there a, a permanent impact that COVID is having on, um, on systems that, uh, that really speak to issues of um, inequity or in, you know, in, in resource development or in even the approaches that we're taking to climate change? I know that that's a big topic, vaccine inequality, but you know, let, let's take a step back and look what's working here. The Chinese vaccine is a dead letter. And so it doesn't matter if there's 2 billion doses of it out there. Most of the countries that have used it for because they could get it earlier or because it was cheaper have now regretted and have moved over to the mRNA formulas, which are proving much more successful. But the mRNA formulas have two big setbacks. First of all, they have to be frozen. That makes it very difficult to distribute it to most of the world. So the idea that some parts of the world that have a cold chain system in place are going to be able to get it first, I mean, that's just logistics. And then second, it was a new technology. When we had the breakthrough, we didn't have manufacturing capacity for it. That's why it took so long for these vaccines to get to Canada in the first place, much less the rest of the world. We're building out that manufacturing capacity as fast as it's humanly possible. The companies have basically been given a blank check to build it out whenever and wherever they can. And by the end of this calendar year, 2022, we should have been able to get doses into everybody who wants one. Mm. That has always been the fastest that it could happen. So is that unequal? Okay, fine. But you're not going to distribute this stuff in Congo when there's not a freezer in the town. You have to build that first. And to do all of that in two years, I find to be a monumental achievement. Yeah. yeah. You know, in, in, your, uh, in your 2014 book, you foresaw American disengagement from the world. Uh, Donald Trump certainly wanted to do a lot of that. Um, how, how has your view evolved, do you think, um, now that you've come through the Trump presidency, not the impact of Trump and Trumpism yet, for sure, there's still a lot more to come there. But how, how have your views evolved on America's place in the world? Well, I'd argue, first of all, I just need to underline that this is not a Trump phenomenon. I mean, this is not an American conservative phenomenon. This is an American phenomenon. Uh, Joe Biden is actually more anti-trade than Donald Trump ever was. Yeah. Uh, the big difference in the policy between the two is that Biden is actually building out the institutions that are necessary to deglobalize America, whereas Trump just tweeted about it. <laughs> so we're actually seeing an accelerating of that trend. The big thing that has shifted from my point of view is back in 2014, I thought the United States was going to anticipate some of the changes that are coming and kind of build a short list, a friends and family list, if you will, of countries where the work that the United States needed to do to keep them on board was low and the benefits would be high. That hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. uh, we're now at a point where at current rates of disengagement, the US is going to have exactly four allies five years from now. Who will they be? The United Kingdom, Japan, Australia, and Singapore. Not us. Yes. Not us. I'm, I'm sorry. Don't take this the wrong way, but Canada doesn't have a functional military right now. Okay. Okay. Fine. 
until that's rebuilt, there's not a conversation to have. Political ally, friend, absolutely family, not a strategic ally though. Right. Well, then in a way, um, do you worry uh, a lot's being written in a hurry about this one, uh, especially as we're coming through the, uh, the anniversary of the Capitol riot. Um, are you worried about the institution of democracy in America? The institution itself, not so much. I mean, I certainly have more concerns than I had a year or a year and a day ago. <laughs> I'm not gonna dodge that. Uh, but the United States has been through this before. Uh, unlike Canada, where your electoral system encourages the emergences of multiple parties. Uh, the U.S. first passed the post system in single member districts uh, encourage us to two big tent parties. And that means that factions that might be able to form a group like the Greens or the NDP just don't exist here independently. They have to be under a broader umbrella. And whenever you've got factions that make up the political parties, the factions rise and fall in levels of power over time. And from time to time, geopolitical forces, demographic forces, economic forces, technological change encourage some of those factions to become dominant and others to wither away. This combination of factors has culminated in six different political evolutions across the breadth of American history where new parties have formed and old parties have died. And the factions jump from party to party from time to time. The last time we went through this, we had the Great Depression and World War II. Back then, big business used to all be Democrats, and the African-American community were all Republicans. But events shifted, and the parties moved around, and the factions moved around until they settled into the format that we're now more familiar with. We are now going through our seventh transition. At the moment, the business community, the fiscal conservatives, and the military community have been ejected from the Republican coalition. But organized labor has left the Democratic coalition. Mm -hmm. The Hispanics are in play. And we don't know where this is going to shake out. Now, historically speaking, in the United States, this transition is a five to 12 year process. We're already in year six. So it makes sense that we're starting to see kind of some of the edges about what this might finally settle out. But we're not there yet. We're going to need at least another presidential cycle. You know, do you think Donald Trump will be the president again? Um, <laughs> no, I do not. Um, obviously, people to the left of center of the United States would never vote for him. But um, while there are a lot of people who still define themselves as, oh, sorry, let me, let me phrase this differently. The percentage of Republicans who think that Donald Trump is great and who think that January 6th was not his fault has gone up. But that's because the number of Republicans has gone down. Remember, the business community, the national security community, the fiscal conservatives, what I like to call the, the adults in the room or the math and math crowd, they're no longer part of the Republican institution. And so if we had an election today, they would either not vote or they would vote against Donald Trump. So the American center is pretty clear on what happened on January 6th. It's an increasingly diehard group of people who follow Trump who think something different. And they're getting all the news and they answer all the surveys. And that's why we're talking about this. But if it came down to a center-left candidate versus Donald Trump second time around, I'm pretty sure that the center-left would carry it. Mm. Now, 
We'll do that in an American style and it will be as loud and roundabout as we possibly can make it because that's just how we do things, but that's probably how it would shake out. Oh, nice. Uh, a self-interested question uh, around my own Asian stage, for instance. You know, The Economist recently noted that Japan is, is one of the clearest strategies to deal with an aging demography. Absolutely. But, but who's failing in this regard and what are the consequences? The first thing you have to take into account when your country approaches mass retirement, which I must add, Canada will this decade, is you have to get used to the idea that 0% growth is a positive. Huh. Japan has internalized that. They will never be more than they are now, but they've figured out a way to manage it. They've outsourced their industry to countries with better demographies like the United States and Mexico. They bring the profits back home to help sustain their system. They've realized that with a demographic structure like that, they cannot pursue an independent security policy. That is why Japan was the first country to agree to Donald Trump's terms to pay the United States to remain strategically involved. There are certain choices you have to make. Now, this is the Japanese strategy. Maybe other countries, maybe Canada can find a different one. The fact that Canada is in NAFTA is a huge first step because it means that Canada can access the positive demographic trends in both the United States and Mexico in a way no other country on earth can. These are good things, but you cannot count on everything just continuing. And in my opinion, that is the biggest failure of imagination in Ottawa right now. Mm. Uh, you mean the failure to acknowledge that we may be experiencing 0% growth and have to be content with it. Right. And that that might be as good as it gets. And, you know, the, the people who are running the current government, I mean, let's put Trudeau aside. We all know he's a figurehead. The people who are running the government in Ottawa right now, I don't think they're dumb. I mean, if you look at Deputy PM Freeland, I mean, her first day on the job, Trump becomes president. And you, you want to talk about being handed a rule book that suddenly is no longer relevant. I think all things considered, this crew has done a pretty good job, but it's been damage control the whole time. Hmm. There hasn't been a lot of forethought into what comes next. Yeah, it doesn't seem uh, like uh, uh, perhaps a generation or so ago that Canada has its eyes on the wider world in the same way. No, and that's because the world has changed, not because Canada has changed. Sure. The rules of the game by which all Canadian politicians have been playing since the 1960s are just no longer relevant. And because Canada is in a different hemisphere from most of the, the tumult, it's easy to say that this too shall pass. It's not going to. Peter, I want to, I want to conclude the conversation with, with a question that's more about the individual. I mean, we talked about systems and countries and, and, and the pandemic and things that are, you know, that, that are geopolitically at a global level, but what's an individual to do now? What's, a, what's the best um, survival strategy for each of us? Well, I don't think Canada is going to die if that's your question. I, I uh, think if there was going to break, be a breakup of, of the Federation, that would have happened already. <laughs> um, but in an environment where the global norms are collapsing and we're not going to see change anytime soon, you got to stick with what works and stick with what is close at hand. Uh, if you're talking about from the CFA's point of view, I mean, it's like you're, you're attached to the United States. This is a broadly a good thing. It's noisy. It's uncomfortable. But it's from an economic point of view, it's stable. It will be growing for decades to come. 
The question is whether or not you are exposed to international trends that you can't influence and that are nosediving. And insulating yourself from that, I think, is the single biggest challenge for Canada as a whole, for the provinces individually, and for each individual business person in Canada looking into this new age. What's the, what's the method of insulation? You got to connect yourself to what works. Uh, Mexico is likely to be one of the fastest growing economies in the world for the next 40 years. And they're part of the American system as well. Linking into that in any possible way. Interesting strategy. Um, well, uh, look forward to your talk on the 27th. And uh, I really thank you for the talk today. It's been really great talking to you, Peter. Likewise, and it's going to be a fun time. Peter Zion has been my guest. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business of Vancouver. Thanks a lot for watching.